Good evening. I'm very pleased to welcome you to this Latrobe Asia event, the AUKUS deal, Regional Security in the Indo-Pacific. My name is Beck Striding. I'm the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University. I would like to begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, uh, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which La Trobe University sits. And I would like to pay uh, my respect to their people, both past and present, and extend that respect to other Indigenous Australians who are present uh, tonight. La Trobe Asia is very proud of our efforts to engage the public in thoughtful uh, debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the region uh, in which we live. There has been a lot of ink spilt uh, over the last few weeks on the historic security agreement signed by Australia, the United Kingdom and the United States that has been dubbed somewhat awkwardly AUKUS. Uh, this is a response to regional security concerns about China's rising power and influence in the Indo-Pacific uh, that has been primarily billed as a technology sharing agreement that focuses on military uh, and technological capabilities, including in long range weapons, cyber and undersea technologies. But of course, a lot of the media attention has been uh, devoted to Australia's pursuit of nuclear powered submarines using technology uh, that will be provided uh, by the United States and of course its consequent withdrawal from its existing nuclear submarine program with the French contractor naval group. So while there's a lot of speculation and a lot of guesswork going on, the reality is we don't actually have a lot of information about how this agreement is going to work and the sorts of practical outcomes that it might provide for Australian security or for the regional security order more generally. So tonight uh, we're seeking to demystify AUKUS as much as we can, given the constraints around information. What is it and what isn't it? What do we know about it and what don't we know about it? And tonight we also want to reflect on what the agreement means for Australia's relations with other states in our immediate neighbourhood. How have Pacific and Southeast Asian states responded to this agreement? And are any of the diplomatic rifts that have emerged likely to be temporary or are they reflective of some of the broader cleavages in the approaches to security challenges that have been adopted by different states across the region? I'm really delighted to be joined tonight by an exceptional panel of experts to really unpack uh, this agreement and what we know about it. Uh, Dr. Anna Poles is a senior lecturer at the Centre for Defence and Security Studies at Massey University and an associate scholar with the Macmillan Brown Centre for Pacific Studies at the University of Canterbury. Her research focuses on security and the intersection of geopolitics and local security dynamics in the Pacific. Great to have you here, Anna. Professor Peter Dean is Chair of Defence Studies, Director of the University of Western Australia Defence and Security Institute, and a Senior Fellow at the Perth US Asia Centre. That's like three different jobs right there, Pete. Uh, he's also a very well-regarded historian with an extensive background in military and defence studies. Uh, it's terrific to welcome you here, Pete. 
Dr. Maria Ross-Rudley is an Associate Professor of International Relations at Monash University with expertise uh, in nuclear politics and maritime security, which is a great combo for discussing AUKUS, uh, as well as expertise in diversity in security studies. Uh, Maria is a former intelligence expert and President of the Australian Chapter of Women in International Security. Welcome, Maria. And last but certainly not least is our very good friend, Natalie Samby, who is the founder and executive director of Verve Research, an independent research collective focused on the relationship between militaries and societies in Southeast Asia. Uh, she is also a non-resident fellow with the Brookings Institution's Foreign Policy Program, which is an extremely prestigious posting, and a PhD candidate at the ANU. Welcome, Nat. There will be an opportunity for audience Q&A in the last part of tonight's session. Uh, so please do put your questions in the Q&A box throughout the event. I can see that there's already one in the Q&A, so we're off to a flying start. Uh, and I will pose those questions to the panel when we reach Q&A. Uh, but I wanna start first uh, with you, Pete. You've been looking at the AUKUS deal quite closely, and I'm hoping that we can kind of unpack some of its central elements to begin with. There seems to be three key components. There's the tech sharing, uh, there's the submarines, of course, and then there's the weapons. Uh, the states themselves seem keen to emphasise uh, the tech sharing part of the agreement rather than focusing all the attention on the nuclear submarines. Uh, but what do you think AUKUS tells us about Australia's defence thinking and how it sees its role in the region? Excellent. Thanks, Becky, and, and great to be here. Thank you for Latrobe to Asia to hosting it and for everyone joining in the what well, I'm sure will be a great conversation. Look, you've hit the nail on the head. AUKUS is more than nuclear submarines. It's uh, stolen the headlines, really. We So many, particularly the media, got fascinated by the nuclear submarine question. But in the end, nuclear submarines are actually the first initiative under the AUKUS agreement. And the AUKUS agreement is much broader than that, particularly uh, focused around advanced technology sharing on foreign interference, on AI, quantum computing, all of those great types of things that they're looking at collaborating on. And of course, at the back end of that is a, is a long list of weapon systems that Australia was able to pick up about this. And of course, an agreement between those three countries to talk and work even more on supply chain resilience and on the sharing and, and of those technology about those weapons. That AUKUS also happened with a couple of other key events in the same month of September. And in, of this year. And in fact, what I think what we're seeing is here is, is we've been witness to a really historic period of time in September of this year. When we had the AUKUS announcement, we had OSMIN, the Australian US ministerial consultations happening at the same time. And that's actually largely been forgotten about by the media and, and most of the commentary. But the OSMIN communicator came out just after the AUKUS announcement. It was actually in a, a really fascinating document that's well worth a read. But it again got overshadowed by everyone wanting to talk about nuclear submarines. Then in the same month, we had the Quad Leaders meeting um, on the 24th of September in person in Washington, DC. You take those three things together in a very short period of time. And what I think we witnessed was a pivot point in Australia's strategic policy, uh, a period of time that will bend the arc of Australian strategic history and one that I would argue is actually the most consequential change or pivot point, um, at least particularly in Australia-US relations alliance terms, since the end of the Second World War. 
And why is this? Well, for about three decades now, we've had governments telling us that we do not have to choose between our number one security partner, the United States, and since 2009, our number one trading partner in China. But what was made really clear in September is that we have definitively made a choice and we've chosen the United States and our security partner. <clears throat> and more broadly, what we've chosen is engagement with countries um, around the region that support a sort of, in, their, in the words of the Quad, a free and open Indo-Pacific. And we've clearly aligned ourselves along with, the, with those states that are doing that. Excuse me, so when we, what we get in September was the moment when the Australian government, I think, really came to terms with the repercussions of a, of a growing China, of a more assertive China, and what in reality now is a multipolar Indo-Pacific strategic order. And along with that comes the relative decline of US power and an implicit acknowledgement that the future of our alliance with the United States, while still maintaining its centrality in our strategy, will actually be different in its tone and in its tender, tenor going forward. So on one level, if you step, it, it kind of looks like business as usual, right? We did more with the US. You can go back to every policy document, you know, going back to the end of the Cold War, that Australia has on strategic policy. And what are we going to do? They normally throw out this phrase, we're going to broaden and deepen our relationship with the United States. But I would argue that for a good decade or two, um, we haven't really understood what we're broadening and deepening it for. And we've kind of got to a culminating point where um, that looks something different when we step back and look at it. So first of all, our geography is more important now to the US and other allies and partners since the Second World War. US interest in Australia is always bound up with US interest in Asia. If they're interested in Asia, they're suddenly interested in us. We were the backwater area in most of the Cold War, particularly in the 70s and the 1980s and the 1980s, where the focus was on Europe. Now we live in the Indo-Pacific and we live in the hinge of those two oceans, which is the centre of gravity for strategic and economic power in the world today. And while we will continue to work with the, the institutions like the UN and the World Bank that, that was established at the end of the Second World War for peace and prosperity, and we will continue to rely on US nuclear extended deterrence for our security, some of the other key elements of our relationship with Kansas, um, with the US is changing. In particular, I said AUKUS and OSMIN this year are, and the Quad are a recognition that we're moving from an Asia-Pacific strategic order based on US hegemonic power and dominance to an Indo-Pacific strategic order based on strategic competition, multipolarity, and a balance of power. We're moving from a reliance on the US from conventional deterrence, so high-end war fighting, um, based on their ability to provide that for us, to Australia now having a role in collective, or what the US are calling integrated deterrence, um, with the United States and other partners, as they realise in their declining power, they can't do that unilaterally anymore. And we're going from supporting a rules-based order based on international norms buttressed by US leadership and for a period US hegemony to a changing rules-based order based on multipolarity, a balance of power, and as I said, the, the relative decline of the United States. So when you go beyond the glitz and glamour of nuclear submarines, and I'm sure we'll talk about that plenty at, at some stage, and I'm particularly interested in hearing Maria unpack what the nuclear part of that really means for us. Um, can you survey what, what this really means? I think we've actually witnessed an exceptionally profound moment in the change to the way the Australia thinks about and will do strategy into the future. Uh, thanks, Pete. I do want to follow up on that because it might seem a little bit common, but I do want to talk about the subs. Uh, and I do want to ask you about the submarines as well. I mean, there is an agreement uh, to talk 
for 18 months about the optimal pathway for Australia acquiring nuclear-powered submarines. But I wanted to get your views on whether this might eventuate. I mean, we seem to be putting a lot of faith that into this process, that this is, you know, automatically going to happen and we'll have subs by 2040. Um, but is it a possibility that this might fall through? Because we actually don't seem to have good form on this issue over the past decade. Uh, so what are your thoughts and what would be the consequences for Australia's security interests? Are we going to expect that the Collins-class submarines that we have are going to limp into the, the middle of the century? Well, I, I think we're going to have geriatric submarines that we're depending on staying in the water and hopefully, you know, being able to continue to operate. You, you hit the nail on the head. We have an agreement to talk. The government's asked us, to, as the Australian people, to take an enormous leap of faith here. Um, we've got the only thing, we, we don't have a submarine agreement. We had one with the French to build one. We cancelled that. We have no submarine agreement at all at the moment. We have an agreement to talk to the UK and the US over the next 18 months of how we can develop a proposal and a pathway, an optimal pathway to acquiring a fleet of nuclear-powered tax submarines that may not turn up to 2040 or 2050. And if the government's really worried about the strategic environment now, and, and they told us last year in the Defence Strategic Update that the, the 10 years of warning time for major conflict is gone. We've now got, only got nine years on the timetable if it does really happen. But the submarines won't turn up for another 10 years after that if, if we're kind of lucky. And it's an agreement to consult and consult only. And what we've learned over the last couple of years, at the cost of $2.4 billion of taxpayers' money, is that we don't want an overpriced French conventional submarine. Now, $2.4 billion is a, is a lot of money to spend on figuring that out. That, that takes you back to the Tony Abbott decision of, of basically having this competitive evaluation process um, where, let's face it, it, it looked like we were trying to angle for a Japanese submarine deal and managed to annoy them in the process when that didn't happen. But the key thing that any real submarine expert will tell you back in the Tony Abbott days is the competitive evaluation process was broken because what it didn't include was an evolved Collins class submarine. That was not allowed to be put onto the agenda at all. Um, so, and because basically everybody thought that if they did put it up, it would probably win the evaluation process. And the government at that stage wanted to, to play strategic politics with our submarines instead. So when we come back to this, we've got 18 months. That's a lot of pressure for the government. After years of trying to build a conventional French submarine and saying we can't do it, 18 months is a very short period of time to try and figure out how we're going to do this. Um, and, and this is going to be, are we going to build them in South Australia? Are we going to lease them? Are we going to buy them from overseas? Are we going to do a mixed or hybrid build? We don't know. Optimally, what we would do would be to lease a submarine from the US or the UK. We'd probably get something much quicker, potentially in the next five years, but what's really clear is they don't have any spare submarines to lease because they're at production capacity themselves and because they're worried about the same strategic environment we are, they are trying to build and re refurbish and modernise their own submarine fleet as quickly as possible. So the other big question is going to be, can we basically help support, say, for instance, uh, the Americans increasing their capacity to build additional submarines, have the first couple maybe off the ship, ship, slipyards shipyards from those, and that would actually be advantageous to the Americans as that would in the long term build their own capacity to build submarines. All the same question with the UK. Um, is it going to be a UK or US submarine? Well, that's 
how, how's that internal competition going to work? We've got a UK su submarine for the first time in seven years, nuclear submarine visiting us in Perth. Surprise, surprise, why did the British decide to do that? Well, to give us a look at their submarine. Then we have a panel that was revealed in the media the other day that's going to be overseeing and looking into this, which is stacked full of US submarine officers. So the, the bent of the Defence Force seems to be already leaning in one way. And of course, for the Brits, they've announced their astute class submarines, they're going to stop building them. And then they're already into a phase of looking at the new build. And one of the things that you can say with defence capabilities, if you build something from scratch that's new and not proven, the alarm bells start to go off about how badly this can go off the rails, like trying to convert a French nuclear submarine into a conventional submarine. So it would make more sense on many levels to, to get the American submarine. Um, but can we do it? Can, can we? And if we can do it, is, is it going to be built in Adelaide? And are we going to build the whole thing in Adelaide? We haven't built nuclear reactors for submarines before. It may well be that we build the back end of it and the front end of it and not the middle part of it. And we have to ask somebody else to build, as Maria, I'm sure we'll get into the details, that little ball of sun that sits in the middle of it, gives it so much strategic value. But of course, it's something that we've never looked after in our Navy, never developed and had no local nuclear industry as well. So this is a big leap of faith. And I have to say, this is a government that's asking for a very big leap of faith after $2.4 billion to cancel a submarine project, after not great effort at vaccines and quarantine, and uh, not really kicking many goals on other big issues like climate change. So it's, it's a pretty big ask for faith from the Australian public at the moment. But fingers crossed. Uh, thanks, Pete. And I will turn the conversation over to Maria. As I said before in the intro, you're a maritime security and a nuclear security expert. So you are right across these issues. But one of the things that astounds me about this deal is how we've moved to um, having capabilities that involve nuclear power without any public discussion, without any discussion in parliament or, uh, you know, any kind of bringing the public on board with this issue. I find this really, I, I actually find it kind of difficult to come to, to grips with that this has just happened and is this announcement and suddenly uh, we're, we're going to be, you know, um, dealing with these issues of, of nuclear power. So the first question I want to ask you about this, Maria, is, there's a real emphasis on nuclear that these submarines are nuclear propelled, that they are not nuclear weapons, that we're not talking about nuclear weapons. But does this distinction really matter when we think about Australia's international obligations around nuclear non-proliferation? Yes, that's a great question, Beck. And I, I really think actually as um, if this moves forward, I share some of the skepticism that Peter has, um, has, has evinced about whether or not this, this actually may go through. But if it does, you know, when push comes to shove, the, the idea of NIMBY, not in my backyard, um, dealing with nuclear components, we have a hard time in Australia finding a long-term storage facility for low to medium medical waste. Um, you know, we've been working on that for decades. And so how are we going to handle, you know, sort of the environmental and, and community questions about that? Um, so referring to your question about, you know, it, how, how have we moved forward without public consent? And my question is, is I think that's still coming in the future. Is there, um, you know, what are the Australia's nonproliferation obligations under the NPT, under its safeguard agreements with the IAEA? Um, and does it matter that it's nuclear propelled versus um, nuclear armed submarine? 
And in one way, yes, it absolutely does. So a nuclear armed submarine would violate the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Australia would be a clear violation of international treaty, of um, its uh, the um, nuclear weapons-free zone um, in the area which it has signed to, and other agreements. Um, and so it you know, for Australia, the Australian government, they really want to be clear they're not talking about nuclear armed submarines. Um, however, nuclear propelled submarines still make it very tricky um, because Australia has obligations under the um, NPT, under the um, nuclear weapons free zone, and under its safeguard agreements with the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency. And when you're dealing with um, naval uh, nuclear material related to military purposes, um, the official language is non-prescribed military purposes. So you're allowed to use it for military purposes, but it doesn't have to be under IAEA safeguards. And this raises a lot of concerns because Australia does have a nuclear industry, a, a small civilian um, you know, medical and research um, reactor. And it's, you know, internationally known for the research that we do here, but it has nothing to do with, um, you know, military activities. And so the question is, how would Australia and how would the IAEA handle the fact that we will have um, highly enriched uranium, which is, this is uranium that technically could be taken and used in a bomb with very little adjustment. I mean, there's some things that have to be done, but it's it's not as though this is material that's used, for example, in a nuclear reactor that's low enriched uranium that you have to, there's a lot of effort you have to put into it to make it into a bomb. Highly enriched uranium, that's the type of fuel that would be going, you know, from what we understand, will be going into these submarines. That can be used in a bomb pretty directly. And so how can we be, how can the international community be assured that that's not going to happen, that there won't be diversion of material? And people say, oh, it's, you know, it's Australia, you can trust Australia. And on the one hand, you know, I mean, I, I do think that's the case. But on the other hand, um, you know, there are international standards that countries agree to. And so everybody's got to adhere to them. And finally, there are other countries that are very interested in nuclear submarines, South Korea being one of them. Um, South Korea actually having a, a very mature shipbuilding program where they build their own submarines and could certainly also have advanced nuclear technology, could certainly build their own nuclear submarines. And so, um, you know, how do we figure out these safeguard agreements? This, these questions have not come up before. I mean, they've come up briefly with regard to Canada and actually South Korea and Brazil, but we've never had to actually explore them because Australia would be the first non-nuclear we non weapons state to have a nuclear propelled submarine program. And so it is, it is easy to gloss over and say, oh, they're not nuclear arms, so it won't be a problem. Actually, there are problems, and there are lawyers looking at it right now um, with the IAEA. The IAEA has said they've already convened a special panel to try and figure these issues out. That's really interesting. And I wanted to, to follow up on that and the, um, the small uh, domestic nuclear industry that Australia has and whether or not that's likely to mean uh, that Australia uh, could become reliant on the US uh, for powering the subs if, in fact, they do get built. Yes. 
I mean, look, this is a really tricky question. Again, what do we know and what don't we know? Um, we are pretty sure this will be highly enriched uranium in these submarines, but where will that fuel come from? Now, if, and I think it's really interesting that the government has not, it, it had been so clear in saying we will not have nuclear weapons on board. Why haven't they also said we will not be producing our own highly enriched uranium? Um, because that, that would be a real concern. That wouldn't technically violate Australia's standards, uh, you know, it, it's, um, you know, treaties and agreements, but it would raise concerns around the world for a lot of reasons. Uh, because if you can make your own highly enriched uranium for nuclear submarines, you use the very same equipment to, to um, make highly enriched uranium for bombs. Um, but if, if Australia is just going to be taking highly enriched uranium from the U.S., which is actually what the British do, um, in their submarines, then basically we'll get a package. We'll get the, the nuclear reactor and it will be sort of installed in the sub, whether they're built here or, or built overseas. Um, and so the idea that Australia will have sort of an advanced nuclear industry that will develop out of this is unfortunately, I mean, for, for those who are interested in developing nuclear industry in Australia, that would not be the case at all because this is all gonna be done overseas. And yet it still leaves Australia with an enormous regulatory, legal and safety burden related to um, you know, having uh, nuclear reactors in our, on our shore, you know, when they're in dry dock and in our waters. Um, we've got to have people trained, submariners, maintenance personnel, safety and quality control frameworks established, environmental protection frameworks. We have to think about installations and infrastructure, and then we have to think about potentially changing some of our national laws that relate to nuclear. So it's almost as though we get the worst of both worlds. We wouldn't be developing a nuclear industry, you know, in terms of, um, you know, things that can, we can sort of make things with or export but we would bear the burden of all of the regulatory and safety frameworks that would need to be developed. Yeah, thank you, Maria. You mentioned, you know, sort of reactions from other states around uh, Australia's uh, move here. So I wanted to bring uh, Natalie into the conversation. Uh, we've heard a lot about the French uh, response. They're not happy. Uh, they're very clear about this idea that Australia's uh, sold its sovereignty down the river and, and have been very explicit about uh, their displeasure, uh, particularly around how AUKUS was announced. But I guess we're more interested here about the immediate neighbourhood. Uh, and so uh, you've written, you wrote a great piece uh, on Jakarta's views on AUKUS. And of course, Indonesia is an incredibly important state for Australia to be thinking about. Uh, so I was wondering, are Indonesian leaders really concerned about AUKUS? And if so, what's driving these concerns? Yeah, no, it's an important question, I think, for Australia, given that we have been investing more and more in our not only diplomatic relationship with Indonesia, but particularly our defense relationship. So ensuring that strategic trust is there, transparency is there, and that we're really acting as a partner of the region and not trying to get ahead of what our bigger, more important partners are doing is really important to Jakarta. So, you know, I think I wasn't surprised at all when there was a sense of, you know, minor pushback is, is probably how I would characterize it. Yes, there was concern. Absolutely. And if you look at the foreign ministry statement, which was released the next day after the AUKUS announcement, it's really carefully worded. So if we take the foreign ministry's wording, it says that it views a sub, sub, um, submarine decision, not AUKUS, the submarine decision cautiously 
and is deeply concerned over the continuing arms race and power projection in the region. So reading between the lines, there's not technically an issue with AUKUS. It's just about the idea, and, you know, and as Maria raised, the uncertainty about what are these submarines actually about and what is the potential down the road for us to just, you know, flip a switch and then all of a sudden arm ourselves in ways that would be inimitable to Jakarta's interests. Um, the other elements of the foreign ministry statement that I want to emphasise, which are totally within keeping of Jakarta's outlook and approach to the region, particularly enormous space, as Pete said, with the idea that, you know, it emphasised the nuclear non-proliferation obligations. Again, totally within keeping with the spirit of Jakarta's um, foreign policy, free and active foreign policy, particularly where, you know, norms and, and regimes are concerned. The Treaty of Amity and Cooperation, of course, it's an essential part of ASEAN, the Association for Southeast, Australia, um, Southeast Asian Nations, of which Jakarta feels is a critical component of Indo-Pacific regional order building, and of course, the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea. So to give an idea of what Jakarta's concern was, it was the preservation of existing instruments of order building and ensuring that not more instability will be, will be caused by the introduction of nuclear powered submarines and the unknowns from that not from the fact that Australia has decided to enter into a security agreement with the United Kingdom and the United States. Now, after that, of course, there were a range of op-eds expressed. Um, everything from, you know, Australia was a deputy sheriff again. We're not going to shake that one for a while. That was a senior editor of the Jakarta Post um, who said, you know, you may laugh, but Indonesia should not be surprised if Morrison persuades Papua to emulate East Timor, if Papuans do not feel if they're at home in their own motherland we can't necessarily sweep history under the rug. And Australia's participation in Interfet has this, you know, amorphous linkage with the idea that we helped liberate East Timor, which is a Timorese liberated the Timorese. But the perception that we had a role, an instrumental role in disrupt, disrupting Indonesian sovereignty, which is a critical part, not only of how the nation sees itself, but the defense establishment, anything that gives that sort of sense of suspicion will provoke Again, this unsurprising reaction. Um, and again, another senior diplomat said, you know, Australia may change the geopolitical landscape of the region. Another you know, scholar said, from an NPT stance, AUKUS contravenes the spirit of the NPT. So again, a range of, of uh, senses of concern there. Um, but of course, there is a benefit uh, from having AUKUS for Jakarta, and it may not be said so explicitly. Indonesia does have a China issue. We can't deny that. That in particular, in the biggest manifestation of that is the flagrant manner in which Chinese vessels, whether they be survey vessels, maritime militia or coast guard, cross in and out over uh, the exclusive economic zone of Indonesia, which overlaps that section around the Natuna Islands, which overlaps with the Nine Dash Line. So without Jakarta needing to engage in megaphone diplomacy, not wanting to poke the Chinese in the eye, there is potential there to have other elements of the Indo-Pacific, other actors push back in ways that Indonesia cannot, because Indonesia still needs strong cooperation with Beijing. It has a very different relationship. It's closer to Beijing. Let's not forget that. And so, yes, there is benefit there, but not necessarily the case that Indonesian, our Indonesian interlocutors would say so, so explicitly. On the other hand, you know, AUKUS might generate more strategic anxiety for Jakarta than is foreseen. You know, my good friend of it, Lexmana, wrote uh, in East Asian Forum recently that the way Australia sees China's role in the region is never going to align strategically with the exact way that Jakarta does. So, yes, from Jakarta's perspective, there is a potential there for August, August to aggravate US-China strategic competition in ways that will be unfavourable to the stability 
um, and, and peace that Indonesia needs in order to be able to deal with a lot of its domestic prosperity issues. So just to give you a sense of the spectrum of views, you know, official statement, cautious, specifically about the submarine issue, general silence about, you know, coming from the official level about AUKUS itself, you know, there's a recognition that countries like Australia are entitled to form the kinds of minilateral engagements that Indonesia is in, and then a range of views expressed within the diplomatic community, uh, academic community, um, and in commentary as well. That's really fascinating, Nat, and I'm going to give you the impossible task of talking about Southeast Asia more generally because, you know, ASEAN is made up of 10 states. Uh, Southeast Asia can also include Timor-Leste, and you mentioned that enduring myth of Timorese liberation that does uh, persist in Australia. Uh, but I'm going to give you the task of trying to explain the diversity in views about AUKUS that has, uh, has emerged out of the region and maybe giving us a sense of why there are these, why there is difference in opinion among, particularly among the maritime Southeast Asian states. Yeah, it's interesting. So I'm going to split this in two parts. The first part, I'm just going to talk about the 10 Southeast Asian nations, and then I'm going to talk about ASEAN. And so you're right, there's a split there. So I put it, you know, there's the go for it camp. Um, so for the Philippines, the Philippines came out and said, you know what, this is a good idea, sovereign prerogative of, of Australia. And it, it redresses the lack of ability of Southeast Asian states and other states in the region to deal with, I don't think they said so explicitly, but essentially the aggression and, and coercion of China. So from Manila's perspective, go for it, is the, is the clear answer. The other countries that have been supportive, but a little bit more muted, have been Vietnam and Singapore. Um, the ones that have been the most critical have actually been Indonesia, Again, one of our, our most important strategic partners, Malaysia, who actually said that we need to go to Beijing and consult what they think. I mean, did you not read the papers? It was pretty clear Beijing was not happy about it. So it's an interesting statement for, um, you know, Kuala Lumpur to make in terms of needing to go and consult Beijing. Cambodia actually came out recently, like three weeks after the AUKUS announcement, and then actually made statements that they were concerned about the instability that this might bring as well. And again, you can read into maybe the kind of more complex relationship that Cambodia enjoys with China than a country like the Philippines, which has had quite an ambivalent rocky relationship, being the country that actually took China to arbitration over, um, you know, over maritime issues. Um, and then there's a third camp. So we've got, you know, yeah, go for it. We've got the yeah, but kind of, you know, caution. And then you've got the silent group. Um, and into that, you find no official statement Um and, and correct me if I'm wrong, anyone, Thailand, Myanmar, um, Brunei, and Laos. And so, again, it's, it's the degree to which these countries have traditionally made statements like Laos is not particularly a, a very vocal diplomatic actor within Southeast Asia. Brunei currently chair of ASEAN. I feel that maybe some of that objection will be filtered in through those regional statements. Myanmar's got its own thing going on right now. But Thailand, if you want to read into a little bit of Thailand's sense, it's more in the op-eds, but there's been nothing officially um, sent out of, of Bangkok. But again, you know, unsurprising that some of the more uh, active diplomatic figures in Southeast Asia, so Indonesia, obviously very vocal, Malaysia, yeah. Singapore, you know, has got a supportive relationship with the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, and I, I didn't find it surprising that it was supportive in a, in a cautious way as well. Um, and Vietnam has its own complicated relationship with China, both in a maritime sense and an economic sense. So again, you know, there's a sense of... of comfort with having more actors in the region um, that might help balance out what could be coer what has been for Vietnam coercion in the past.
So yeah, again, a very diverse group, but again, not surprising. You know, as we, we talked about in a panel earlier today with Yvette, Southeast Asia isn't a monolithic group. They have their own historical trajectories. They've got their own economic imperatives to deal with Beijing and other actors in the region. And so these kinds of divisions play out in the grouping itself. So the ASEAN, you know, ASEAN had its big summit um, in recent days. The statement's been released. There's nothing about AUKUS that's been referenced directly, but what we do find is an affirmation of those things that the regional grouping does agree on. Things like the Treaty of Amity Incorporation, things like an affirm affirmation of a nuclear-free zone, things like COVID recovery, you know, because other than thinking about US-China strategic relations, Southeast Asia and the ASEAN grouping are fixated by a whole range of other security issues, post-COVID economic recovery, infrastructure development, blue economy, HADR. So we, we need to sort of see where Orca sits relative to the other things that are going on in those groupings. And I think we need to see it in that context. Yeah, really interesting, Natalie. And I see that there are some good questions coming in through the chat about um, ASEAN and Southeast Asia that we'll get to uh, in the Q&A. But Anna, I want to turn east now, thinking about New Zealand. I mean, particularly this move to nuclear-powered submarines uh, is an interesting choice uh, given uh, the, the, the nuclear politics in the Pacific region. Uh, but I wanted to start with New Zealand's response. Uh, they have a nuclear ban in their waters to begin with. I want to know whether there are any implications uh, of that for Australia-New Zealand relations. But I see that there's also a sense in which uh, New Zealand might become uh, kind of involved in AUKUS uh, in some way. So I'm wondering what your views are uh, about, about New Zealand and AUKUS. Kia Beck. Uh, it's great to, to be here um, talking about this this evening. Um, yeah, absolutely. And as Pete noted before, uh, the media focus on the nuclear submarines really overshadowed a lot of the commentary about the, um, the, the New Zealand element to this New Zealand dynamic. And that was really unfortunate because it meant that some of the deeper concerns that we have uh, about growing divergences in the trans-Tasman relationship were overshadowed as a, as a consequence of this. Uh, and some of those deeper alliance questions, which some of us are tussling with. So in very much, I mean, initially the New Zealand response was, was very muted. Uh, it was you know, fairly brief. Uh, Prime Minister Ardern was questioned by the media about why was it New Zealand wasn't invited to join uh, AUKUS. I think it's fairly obvious why New Zealand wasn't invited to join. And she immediately responded to that straight away about that she would, New Zealand would not have expected to have been asked, obviously because, um, not least because of uh, the nuclear element to this, but also just simply too because of the very different capability uh, um, set that, that AUKUS is talking about. Um, but, you know, significantly because of that relationship, because of that alliance relationship, uh, Ardern was the first leader that uh, Prime Minister Morrison spoke to uh, after, the, after the formal announcement, which was, which was you know, um, really, really spoke, well, he spoke rather prior to the announcement, and that was very sort of significant uh, with respect to the relationship. And Ardern has been very careful in the way that she's managed the response to this. There have been efforts by 
uh, say, for instance, the opposition leader to drum it up that New Zealand should have been part of the discussions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that's, you know, domestic politicking in a time of COVID more than, you know, really sensible type of responses. Um, but what did what came out very clear from, from Ardern, and I think this is very much a, a perspective of, you know, uh, a consensus sort of a perspective in New Zealand was that firstly Ardern responded to concerns about militarisation of the region, and that certainly was one, you know, particularly from the Pacific, uh, and also New Zealand's own realities as a small state uh, by emphasising, again, that the collective objective of all partners needs to be the delivery of peace and stability and the preservation of the international rules-based order. Uh, and that very much spoke to the concerns that were emanating out of, out of the region, which brings me to the second point, which really drove uh, New Zealand's response, was that so Ardern reiterated that New Zealand is a Pacific nation and therefore viewed foreign policy developments like AUKUS uh, through um, the lens of what was in the best interest of the region. And this was really significant because it made that clear distinction between where New Zealand is situating itself strategically uh, and that strong sort of Anglophone tone to, uh, to AUKUS and the divergence between Australia and New Zealand as a consequence of that. And for that reason, AUKUS is very much a, um, is actually very much an inflection point for New Zealand. Uh, and even though uh, there has been, uh, you know, efforts to, to downplay what has really dominated a lot of the discussions around New Zealand uh, and the relationship with, the, with Australia and, and, the, and the rest of the Five Eyes is that New Zealand is is uh, the weaker link, so to speak, uh, within that arrangement. Um, and, and so there were efforts to downplay that, to say that AUKUS would not impact on, on security and intelligence ties with Australia, the US and the UK. Uh, and, and also, and we saw this in the past, in actually in the past few days, where uh, New Zealand's High Commissioner, Annette, Annette King, Damon Annette King, came out in, in, in the media saying that there were actually um, avenues or opportunities for New Zealand to actually engage uh, with AUKUS, particularly in that cyber security space. And I think that, you know, we shouldn't really, really be um, alarmed by that because that would obviously, you know, be of benefit to New Zealand uh, to be able to do that. So, so that so moving away from that you know that focus on the nuclear issue, although it is obviously fundamentally important, um, and yes, you know nuclear ban on New Zealand's nuclear ban on on nuclear um, powered or nuclear armed ships is certainly not new. I mean it dates back to 1984, obviously, uh, when as many of you would recall, when in the United States uh, suspended its security obligations to New Zealand uh, under ANZUS when New Zealand denied um, entry to the USS Buchanan, but New Zealand's anti-nuclear stance is very much, uh, it's bipartisan, it's very much part of New Zealand's uh, strategic culture and, and identity and, really, and very much kind of the cornerstone of, of that independent foreign policy that we hear so much about and never can quite pin down often. But it is legislated, it's legislated in the New Zealand uh, Nuclear Free Zone Disarmament and Arms Control Act in 87, uh, and it's certainly is uh, very unlikely that there'll be any kind of shift to that. And Australia is very clear on that. Canberra is very clear on that. And I cannot envisage a situation where Canberra would seek to test that in any way uh, uh, down the track. So I think that's, 
I, I think whilst that has been overplayed, there are actually some far more interesting dynamics to think about in terms of where New Zealand fits into this potential relationship, what it means for broader cooperation across strategic um, strategic you know, across the issues of strategic competition in our immediate region and the role that New Zealand can play as a junior partner in the alliance with Australia. Thanks. And I wanted to follow up. You're an expert in Pacific security and, and politics as well. And much like Southeast Asia, Pacific is not a monolith, but I'm wondering how Pacific leaders have responded to AUKUS. Yeah, thanks, Beck. That's a great question. And it's, you know, it's one which is really um, has been quite sort of overlooked, actually. Uh, but like reactions from ASEAN uh, member states, it is you know, fundamentally important that that we understand and aware of regional perceptions, not least because, you know, the Pacific, Australia's Pacific step up has really been the kind of the cornerstone of a lot of diplomatic and defence effort in the Pacific. And we hear a lot of language around vuvale, which is a Fijian term for, for a family, and this, this sense very much of Australia being part of this family in the region. And this, again, is where there is a slight tension point with New Zealand in, in terms of that engagement. And so public responses from the Pacific have for the large part, been quite muted, but that's actually not surprising. Uh, it's you. Know, I wouldn't expect to have you know grand statements being made. We certainly don't expect there to be any kind of statement made by the Pacific Islands Forum, which is a preeminent political grouping in the region, and and the only leaders uh, to actually welcome the AUKUS agreement uh, are from the North Pacific. So from the Federated States of Micronesia, uh, David Panuelo, uh, which, and obviously FSM, um, Federated States of Micronesia is you know, firmly part of that US uh, defense umbrella. Uh, and you know, he, he made a statement welcoming uh, AUKUS and he, he stated that, uh, he, that it didn't represent a, a seismic shift um, in any way from previous commitments or engagements. And, and he welcomed that. But more broadly, though, uh, in the rest of the region, there's a far more muted responses. PNG, um, Papua New Guinea's Prime Minister, James Marape, he made a comment uh, that Papua New Guinea has had no problem with, uh, with the agreement in so far as securing peace. Uh, is, it was an objective to it, but if the agreement brought about disharmony to the region, then obviously um, there would be significant concern. And, and notably, uh, at the UN General Assembly uh, several weeks ago, Fiji's Prime Minister, uh, Frank Banimarama, uh, he drew parallels between inaction on climate change and AUKUS and, and money. So very much that kind of that similar to the sort of guns and butter type uh, type debate. And he stated that if we can spend trillions on missiles, drones and nuclear submarines, we can fund climate action. And it's important to mention that, not least because in the lead up to COP26 as well. And this really strikes at the heart of the tension that Australia has in its relationship with the Pacific between balancing its strategic imperatives and, and, uh, and the priorities and uh, expectations of, of its Pacific family. From civil society, and it's really important to mention that because they you know very much the backbone of, of the anti-nuclear movement in the Pacific, civil society has, has you know, obviously come out very strongly uh, and 
you know, the Pacific Council of Churches, for instance, uh, came out very strongly saying that this was not in the interests of, of the region, uh, of the Pacific Vuvale, uh, indeed. And, and, and other civil society organisations have come out, you know, calling for, calling for Australia to be put on notice at the Pacific Islands Forum. Uh, and there are concerns, though, about uh, what could potentially happen if there were accidents for interest. And this all speaks to, you know, broader concerns around where, you know, tension, potential tension points with the Treaty uh, of Rarotonga, for instance. Thanks. Anna, uh, we have a lot of questions in the Q&A, uh, which is great. Keep them coming in. But I am going to try to collapse a few together so that we can cover as many themes. There's so much to unpack. Uh, but, Pete, I might start with you. And I've got a, a question. There's a few questions about sort of the relationship between Australia, the US and the UK. And some have been critical of AUKUS as being kind of, you know, really focused on the Anglosphere or going back to the future uh, by by entering this arrangement with the UK in particular. Uh, so there's a couple of, of questions, uh, if you'll bear with me while I um, collapse them together. One is about, um, you know, concerns about reliance on the United States and whether, you know, if, if, the, if the USA is able to lose interest uh, in campaigns such as those in Afghanistan, how certain are we that the USA is able to sus uh, sustainably support Australia's military interests in the Indo Pacific region. I have a sense I know how you might start to answer that question, um, perhaps by um, pointing out the, the shift in attention to the Indo-Pacific region, but I won't preempt you. Uh, but Tess Newton-Kane, nice to have you here, Tess, is also asking about the profound shift that you identify and whether or not that can be sustained politically, given the AUKUS membership uh, and how they have operated politically and strategically in the recent past? Sure, thanks, Pete. And two really great questions. Um, on, on the first one, a, a couple of points, and I will admit that I wrote a piece for the, for the Atlantic Council on that very specific question about Afghanistan. And uh, in fact, um, when you look at the way alliances work and the way that people interact around alliances, it's about the recognition of strategic interests. Um, there's, a, there's a theory about alliances where people, what's called past action theory. So we'll look at the past of how the US has behaved towards Afghanistan and say, well, they're unreliable, so therefore they're unreliable over here. There's been an enormous amount of academic research on this. It's basically proven that past action theory does not work in the way alliances work. What it is is about Australia identifying what its interests are with the United States and where they collide or don't collide on specific areas or topics of area of interest. In fact, I would argue that it's actually in Australia's interest that the US withdrew out of Afghanistan. This was a conflict that they'd become bogged down in. It was a massive distraction on what was happening in the Indo-Pacific. It was sucking up a huge amount of resources. Um, and, of course, it was not a, a campaign that was popular both in the United States or Australia. And, in fact, what this allows the United States to do is actually focus more of its interests on the Indo-Pacific region. The Biden administration has said that the Indo-Pacific region is their priority and they're undertaking a global force posture review of their military at the moment. And what I expect will happen out of that global force posture review and certainly what the kind of the leaks or the scuttlebug and the talk that's coming out of is that the withdrawal out of Afghanistan is is basically pre-positioning the US for a, a broader pullback from the Middle East, where they don't have the same number of strategic interests that they used to have, and to allow them to move diplomatic, economic, 
and military resources over to the Indo-Pacific where they're facing much bigger and to be frank, more existential challenges to their, their, their role in regional order. Um, so I think it's, it's actually a, a benefit. This is actually, to be honest, some strategic sense being judged in Washington to get out of a, of a, of a dead end um, conflict. Now I say that with, you know, also the, the great trauma that our friends and partners in Afghanistan are going through, we can never underlay the, the impact on the civilian population from a broader strategic point of view though. It was a smart thing to do. It was the wise thing to do. If nothing else that we saw by the quick collapse of the Afghan government to the Taliban is that the people of Afghanistan did not support that regime. And without that support, it was never going to be successful, no matter how much money we threw at it and how much longer um, we stayed in that conflict. Um, in terms of Tess's questions, I think it's very sustainable politically because of the long, deep nature of the relationship. Now, I was one of the ones that, that made that back to the future sort of analogy as well, and it looked very white and Anglosphere approach. But those three countries weren't looking at it in that respect. I think what they were looking at is this, these are three core countries of part of five eyes that we mentioned before. What this is is an element of trust. These are the, the two security partners that the United States have that they trust more than any other on the planet, even more than the NATO countries. You know, um, Japan, South Korea um, are not part of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing network. What the United States has said in this agreement, it has faith and trust in their partnership with the UK and Australia in terms of their ability to actually keep the secret secret and that there will be a value add for the United States back into sharing this technology and partnering this technology. We've already heard um, you know, some questions and some discussions and some, some prodding and pointing of, of Canada um, about taking a, a broader interest in involving in this. And of course, what's really instructive, I think, about the French reaction to this is the French seem to just as much or if not far more upset about being left out of AUKUS as they did about losing a $90 billion submarine contract. And what that basically says is they were trying to position themselves as, as a really important power in the Indo-Pacific and they feel that they've lost out on that. Um, so what I actually think, I wouldn't be surprised because this is really, it's not an alliance, AUKUS, it's a technology and uh, weapons and other sharing pact. It's almost like an, an MOU in many respects. I wouldn't be surprised if you start seeing other countries in the region being added into it, like Japan, um, like India, the other Quad countries, um, uh, Canada, um, for instance, even, even France, when that relationship settles down a little bit more diplomatically from the sort of sparkling outrage they got from the Champagne region of submarine building. Um, and I, I, I think, but that also means to get back to Tess's question, um, there's political sustainability on, on, on this. However, because it's such a profound shift that I mentioned before, what is really unhelpful is using this sort of phrases of alliance sentimentality that are being thrown out by our political leaders about an unbreakable alliance and never-ending alliance. The key realisation we made here is those changes are identified, but that will make the alliance more risky and potentially far more costly. If we're getting involved in an extended um, conventional collective deterrence posture with other countries, if we are basically hosting, and uh, and if you look at the Osman Agreement, there's going to be a joint logistics facility or a joint base built between the Australians and the and the Americans to support all the additional rotation of US forces, that will come with increased risk and increased cost. And we have to have a very frank conversation with the Australian public about what that means. And frankly, language like 
never-ending and unbreakable is really unhelpful because it sets up the relationship in a way where you it's hard to disagree. And trust me, on this new basis, we will have times where we will fundamentally disagree with the United States, as in the past, we've had some really fundamental disagreements, mainly centred on our relationship with Southeast Asia, is where we fundamentally agreed with the United States on in, in the 60s, in the 70s, in the 80s, and even through into, if you remember, the Abbott government disagreeing with the United States on the Avery Infrastructure Development Bank, disagreeing with the United States on FONOPS, Freedom of Navigation Exercises in the South China Sea. That language pushes both partners into a very awkward position and, in fact, just sets the relationship up to come under more stress and more strain that actually doesn't really need to do in, in, in commentary and public affairs. But it's built off that strong foundation of that, that Five Eyes relationship and deep relationship, but it's different in you. So I think probably the greatest threat to the political stability of, of the AUKUS alliance has to be the domestic politics of the United States. The key question is, it was Donald Trump an aberration in US political history or is Joe Biden the new aberration? And certainly if you look at the Chicago opinion polling that came out the other week, the United States of America, the people of the United States of America overwhelmingly support their allies, overwhelmingly support deep um, engagement in Asia. And those numbers, in fact, have only been rising during the period that we've had been of Trump. But of course, domestic politics in, in the Republican side of America has a very different view of that, captured as it, as it is still to this day by the power of Donald Trump. Yeah, that's a really uh, good point, Pete. And I wouldn't mind hearing Maria's views on that. But I also want to bundle together a few questions for you while we go, Maria. Um, French submarines uh, powered by low-enriched uranium, which may have alleviated MPT issues. Was the relationship so bad that that was not even considered? We have a, a couple of questions here about uh, the French, uh, the, the submarine program uh, and the fact that, you know, the, the French conventional submarine was Australia's own request. Uh, so I'm wondering uh, what your view on those issues are. Yes, certainly. Um, just, just, I just want to touch briefly on can Australia trust the US given its domestic politics is really what Peter was talking about. And I just have to say I'm, I'm a bit more pessimistic, Pete, um, because there are, it's not just on the right, it's on the left too, leftist populist movements who want to look at focusing on sort of America first, you know, from in terms of healthcare, education, I mean, infrastructure is degrading. And I, I actually, um, you know, don't, would be very hesitant. That said, I don't think the U.S. would back out of a submarine deal because the U.S. is going to make a lot of money off of it. Um, it's just the larger questions in this, you know, security arrangement, I think, would need to be considered very carefully. I mean, why didn't we just go with a French nuclear-powered submarine, the low-enriched uranium? Well, I would say, to begin with, um, there was not an appetite for nuclear submarines at the time when Turnbull made this decision. And may I say, I actually have the quote here, this March, so March 2021, um, um, former Defense Minister Christopher Payne said, there's more chance of me winning the 100 meter sprint at the Tokyo Olympics than Australia developing a nuclear industry to support such a fleet. And so um, realistically, there, I mean, there are a lot of experts saying Australia can't do this. This, we do not have the capacity for it. And so why did we, that's why we went conventionally, because we couldn't do nuclear, because we don't have, 
let me put it this way. We have one nuclear engineering program in the entire country that's got a handful of lectures in it. There is a, um, a, a nuclear engineering, a UQ scholarship in nuclear engineering. Um, the student, it's it, the purpose is for the student to go overseas to study because we don't have programs here. How are we going to do all of this? Um, and so that's why we went with the French conventional submarine. I mean, it wasn't a good idea in that, um, as Pete mentioned, you don't take anytime you're doing a large defense contracting project, you don't want to do something new. Whoever is doing it the first time is going to, it's going to be very painful for them. It's going to be a lot more expensive and take a lot longer than you thought. And so the fact that we moved ahead with this against the advice of a lot of experts out there, um, that was a mistake. But ditching it, especially in the way that it happened, to move to another agreement, which frankly may also not be sustainable, um, is, is another problem. So, you know, I, I don't, I, there are, there are reasons to have nuclear submarines and some of them make sense for Australia, but a lot of them don't. And frankly, there are a lot of experts and I'm one of them saying, yes, we need submarines. Let's buy them off the shelf. They're a lot cheaper. Um, we don't have to worry about all of this nuclear related training, um, all of the environmental issues. And if you don't mind, I did see a question which might've been a bit cheeky about how do nuclear submarines hurt orcas? I mean, there are environmental considerations when it comes to floating reactors. Now, some people call them floating Chernobyls, and that's just not the case. They're much safer than that, especially U.S. design ones and British design ones. But the fact is, you know, this is a nuclear reactor, and you can have accidents with it. And um, given our lack of, of capability in this area and the cost, it it boggles the mind, to be honest. Um, you know, they're saying that it's going to be about 50% more than the 90, um, 90 um, billion we were looking at with the French um, to get eight submarines. When Aspie says for sea denial um, to protect your, your coast, you need 24. So we're going to be spending a huge chunk of defense money, our taxpayer money, for you know, I'm not exactly sure what it's going to get us other than the chance to sort of play, play with the U.S. and the U.K. So. Uh, Pete, I think you wanted to just add on to that briefly. Yeah, just very quickly. I, I totally agree with Maria that buying these things off the shelf would be far better. The problem, one of the problems is we have in Australia is we don't have an, an industry policy from government. We have a defence industry policy. But to be frank, the real industry involvement here in any capability is not building them, it's actually maintaining them over their 20, 30, 40 year lifespan. So it actually wouldn't reduce um, the ability of the industry to get involved here. But in terms of getting them, as a strange strategic policy person who lived and breathed this for the last 20 or 30 years of my life, there are three things, and you can't avoid having discussions on submarines. They're always at the top of the list in this field. Three things why we couldn't have nuclear powered submarines in the past. We had no nuclear power industry in Australia. No one could win the political debate about nuclear politics in Australian federal politics. And while those two could be dealt with, everyone always said the third and insurmountable problem was that the US would never share the technology. And so, and because they only had done it once before in 58, 59 with the British. Now that that third one has disappeared, that was always the real sticking point. The other two seem to be solvable. The politics is solved because we've got bipartisan support on this. But as Maria says, the nuclear power industry piece and building these and maintaining these, this is not a defence um, initiative. This is a national sovereign industry program. This is how big 
disease. And as Maria said, it's not $90 billion now. It's probably somewhere between $120 and $180 billion. And there's an opportunity cost for that as well in all other areas of public policy. And it's just another unknown, really, because we also don't know how many are going to be built. Is it at least eight? And where did they come up with that number? As Maria points out, like what's our thinking about how many submarines we actually need to defend uh, an extensive coastline and a, the world's third largest exclusive economic zone? So thank you, Maria. Uh, now, Natalie, there are quite a few ASEAN-related questions. Uh, I'll try not to give them to you all at once, uh, but we do have a, a question around uh, whether AUKUS will push ASEAN further into the shadows in terms of providing regional security. So is there a, an impact on the ASEAN centrality of these, uh, not just AUKUS, but other forms of, of uh, you know, multilateralism like the Quad uh, as well? Um, and another one that I'm going to throw in here um, is, uh, is it fair to say that ASEAN is free riding off the sea lane security that AUKUS and the sub-missiles provide? So that's a slightly different perspective about um, ASEAN and AUKUS uh, and whether or not ASEAN really can have its cake and eat it too. Cool. All right. Well, let's take the first one about sub, uh, sidelining ASEAN um, and other multilateral engagements. It's a potential moment of reckoning for ASEAN. If ASEAN sees itself as the linchpin of the Indo-Pacific, if it wants to prioritise ASEAN centrality, then it needs to help itself become a stay relevant. I mean, it's already shown a lot of the difficulties it's had in order to be able to deal with Myanmar, you know, trying to come you know, together with a five-point consensus, trying to get some sort of traction about what to do with the humanitarian crisis there. Um, ASEAN still does what it was set up to do, which is to, to prevent conflict within a Southeast Asian nations, you know, between them. Um, and it still provides a significant number of interfaces, both formal and informal, across both you know, Southeast Asian government um, officials and also civil society as well. So it does have that enduring value. But going into the future, if, if groupings like ASEAN and the Quad are coming in and are threatening ASEAN centrality, well, that's the moment to sit back and say, well, what are we going to do about it? Um, and certainly, you know, one of my colleagues, Ristia Natrandi Suprianto, the ANU, has all written foreign policy recently. It's a moment to reflect how much independence has ASEAN lost or is losing um, in the face of Beijing's coercive diplomacy. If ASEAN centrality isn't providing the kinds of solutions that Southeast Asian states need, then minilateralism is the answer. Then other groupings like the Quad, which are actually providing material value in terms of vaccine diplomacy, amongst other things. It's managed to sort of de-emphasise its China containment, um, you know, public relations campaign in exchange for something far more practical. Well, then ASEAN equally needs to come to the table and say, okay, we're either going to evolve in relation to the changing strategic environment or we are going to become obsolete. Um, with regards to the free riding, I mean, that's a question for when, when that happens in future. You can argue at the moment that Southeast Asian states are you know, getting the benefit of other states like the United States doing, um, you know, free passage and things like that. Uh, Southeast Asian states, you know, there is a greater contribution to be made, but there's so many limitations on the ability for some, not all, for some Southeast Asian states to be able to contribute um, in material ways. Indonesia, for, for instance, which is far more concerned about its maritime domain than power projection or being able to 
help support other sea legs. It's got its own sea legs of communication that needs to worry about. So in, in some ways, if Indonesia is able to um, modernize and consolidate its, its naval capabilities, there will be dividends for other regional states. But as we've seen, you know, as Pete talked about sustainment being one of the most costly and, and difficult things of, of um, defence capability, in Indonesia's case, that's a challenging thing, as we saw in April with the sinking of the KRI and Angala. Um, it depends on how these countries are dealing with their overall economic um, circumstances and the ability to which that they're able to then become security providers or, you know, to whatever degree, um, you know, may not be a maximal security provider, but other kinds of security providers. So we will see on that. Uh, thank you, Natalie. Uh, now, Anna, uh, going back to the Pacific. Now, I know in my introductory comments, I kind of bracketed France out a little bit, but France is an Indo-Pacific power. If you think about its uh, territorial claims across um, the Indian Ocean, the Pacific, as well as its claim in Antarctica, it has material uh, maritime interests across the Southern Pacific and Indian Oceans, just like Australia does. Uh, is there a real issue in terms of Australia's reputation as a credible and reliable strategic partner um, to other Indo-Pacific regional actors? And is this likely to affect Australia's relationship in the Pacific? Because, you know, they do work together on things like maritime security cooperation. Is this likely to have a lasting impact? And I'm going to add another question uh, from Tess again. Given the range of views from Pacific leaders uh, you've identified, is this something that could add to an already fractious agenda at the forthcoming uh, Pacific Island Forum's leaders meeting, which, of course, Australia is also a part of? Thanks, Beck. And these are, I mean, great questions. And I think that's something that that has, you know, has also been overlooked. The, the, you know, France's role in the Pacific, it is, as you say, it's a maritime power in the Pacific. It has a strong defense presence in the in the region. It has you know, strong economic interests, obviously. Uh, and and the, 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 France's Pacific entities of New Caledonia and, and French Polynesia. And Wallace and Fatuna are all, you know, all part of France's overseas territories, and which France takes, you know, incredibly seriously. Uh, and France and, and Australia work together very closely. Um, France, um, France is the obvious, um, obvious uh, platform for that, and, uh, and that's very much focused on on disaster response and uh, and uh, illegal activities and the maritime domain. Uh, and, they, and there's also other coordination too, um, as well. France is a, a member of the uh, Pacific uh, community and SPREP. Uh, and so there are multiple uh, avenues for uh, engagement and cooperation between France and, and Australia. So I think what we will find is that there, you know, obviously there are strong concerns and France has expressed those very clearly uh, towards Australia, but the realities of, of security cooperation in the Pacific are such that there, will, there are plenty of opportunities to keep working together very closely and, and a strong need to work together very closely. You know, we're heading into, into cyclone season uh, very shortly and, and, and certainly expected to be one of the worst and uh, very serious um, likelihood of, of, of um, increased cyclones in the region. So, you know, from a HADAR perspective, from a maritime security perspective, uh, resource security, illegal fishing and so forth, 
these are all the areas that they will certainly continue to work together very closely with. But I think it's, you know, from a French perspective, they are very much trying to position, uh, you know, that the, the positioning of France as an Indo-Pacific power, the Pacific Islands region is very much at a, a, um, a core part of that because obviously it increases France's easy dramatically uh, and increases France's uh, um, identity as, as, a, as a maritime maritime power. But then, you know, they're also facing, you know, a number of challenges as well. New Caledonia uh, heads to an independence referendum on the 12th of December. Uh, and so, you know, this is a region which France is deeply invested in for a range of reasons. And, and, this, and for a long time, there was a growing Australia-France partnership in the region so it'll be very interesting to see to see where that goes in terms of in terms of what this all means for uh, the upcoming Pacific Islands forum meeting well I mean it really I mean AUKUS really does highlight as I said before Australia's you know, the fact that Australia has really struggled for a long time to 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 balance a sort of coherent discourse uh, between its own strategic interests in the region and beyond the region, uh, and and those are the Pacific Islands and and the the language of family, the language of, of Vuvale and and so forth. So I think it, you know there there certainly will be concerns, uh, you know, potentially voiced. But quite frankly, a lot of this is going to come down to what happens in Glasgow at COP. And you know, if Australia delivered on climate promises, if it del delivered on uh, expectations and what it's really signed up to as part of the Pacific Island Forum uh, Boy Declaration on Regional Security from 2018, if Australia delivered on, on, on climate um, action, then AUKUS probably would not actually be of as much of a significant concern, although obviously it still is a, you know, it is a serious concern for, for many across the region and because of that potential militarization. But it's that tension that will you know, potentially be there in the room that if Australia doesn't deliver on climate uh, and you know, brings AUKUS to the table, then there are going to be some questions raised, not necessarily in the room, but certainly you know, potentially around the Carver Bowl subsequently uh, about Australia's role in the region. Yeah, I might just stick with you uh, just briefly, Anna, because we have a question that I hadn't really thought of before, and it's kind of the flip side of, uh, or maybe not the flip side, but, you know, we're thinking about Australia's credibility, but what about France's credibility in, in the region? I mean, is part of the, the reason why Australia um, decided that it could announce AUKUS in the way that it did because it, it doesn't see France as being an incredibly important Indo-Pacific player? Yeah, I mean that's a, I mean it's a really really interesting question, and the, Australia's very poor diplomacy around AUKUS, around the announcement, uh, just really kind of speaks volumes, actually. Uh, and and one does have to ask uh, why, um, how, how, who thought this was a good idea to to do this, to to not actually. A, talk to the people that you had an agreement with and secondly talk to the folks um, in the neighborhood as well uh, and and it, and it really and it also yeah you're absolutely right what does it say about perceptions in Canberra about France's role as a stable uh, partner as a, an important strategic partner in the Pacific region and that's a really it's a really big question and a little and potentially a bit of a stumbling block as well uh, in in the Pacific. Too. 
Uh, I might give Pete a, a go at that one as well, but I also want to, to ask you, Peter, what is the point of submarines? Like, you know, I've been thinking <laughs> through this my, myself. I mean, the Defence Strategic Update, I because mean, on the one hand it's kind of obvious and there's you talk about integrated deterrence and, and these sorts of concepts, and but the Defence Strategic Update was really talking about grey zone challenges and these are the sorts of challenges that are really facing regions like Southeast Asia, uh, like the, the Pacific Island states in their maritime domains. And part of what the Defence Strategic Update said last year was that these are time pressing, these are on us now and we need to be able to deal with them now and yet we seem to invested an unknown quantity of money into something that may not get delivered and if it does it will be in 2040 so could you give us a sense of what 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 can they do in terms of maritime security or Australia's security interests more generally thanks Birkin and look I, I wanted just to weigh in on the other one I totally agree with Anna on this and and I think my my insight into why Australia handled the announcement so poorly of something that actually could have been evaluated in so many ways is that this current government dealt with it the way that they deal with every political decision. This was, it, it took its domestic political toolbox and applied it to international affairs and it blew up in its face. They, you know, Scott Morrison came out, had a, had a less than 12 minute, 11 minute and 50 second um, conference with a one and a half page announcement that left more space for their people to fill than what we actually knew of ideas and treated the French the way he basically treats people in domestic politics who have got interest groups that he's not interested or concerned with in a very short-term tactical point of view without taking the broader long-term um, view of this. The French, um, I mean, the French would have had to have been very blind if the naval group hadn't picked up all the signals that were coming out in the previous 12 months about how this contract was going off the rails. I mean, we were reading it in the paper almost weekly about how many problems they had. And the government made it clear at the beginning of the year they weren't going to sign the next phase of the contract, that they were going to hold that over, which should have been a, a massive red warning light going off to the French. But the fact that the Prime Minister broke up with the French on a text message over a $90 billion deal with one of the key partners in the Indo-Pacific, one of the countries has the largest role in the Indo-Pacific, it has territories in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean, it's deeply invested, it had come on the journey with Australia about having more of a significant role that we've been encouraging it to have in the Indo-Pacific and we couldn't even be bothered to make a phone call and, and you saw how quickly the Americans ran away from it as well and put all the blame on us. They were like, well, we thought the Australians were dealing with this and did a mea culpa very quickly with the French. I mean, it's just, it's it's like they forgot that diplomacy even exists. It couldn't really get any worse, let alone the fact that they didn't send people into the region ahead of the announcement to brief, at least on the morning or the 10 seconds before it happened, to brief key partners like Indonesia and Singapore, like New Zealand, like Fiji, like, you know, you know pretty much name every important country or region. It, it was a really ham-fisted way of doing that. That said, nuclear submarines are great. Like from a strategic person and a naval person, they're fantastic. Um, from all the operational considerations, it's a no-brainer for Australia to have nuclear-powered submarines. The reason is, first of all, distance. As you said, Beck, we have the third largest EEZ in the world. We're, we're the only island continent. 
We have very vast expanses. And the submarines are based in Perth, in Western Australia, where I'm based. And even to get to an operational zone um, to the north of, northern waters of Australia, let alone to the South China Sea, takes the majority of their time and fuel just to get an operational station. And a key simple notion is that on publicly available information, it is estimated that one of our current conventional submarines can spend 11 days on patrol in the South China Sea. A nuclear-powered submarine can spend 77 days. And the only reason the nuclear-powered submarine has to come back is it runs out of food and the crew get tired. It will never run out of power and it will never run out of fresh water. The other thing is, as we move in, I noticed some comments here about um, autonomous systems and that. As we move into a world of more autonomous systems and more advanced weaponry and sensors, what those submarines need is power to power those new um, weapons and systems. A nuclear-powered submarine has almost unlimited power. A conventional-powered submarine has to spend all its time husbanding its power and worried about its batteries going flat. It's more vulnerable because it has to operate near the surface more often to recharge those batteries. Um, so it's nowhere near as, a, as effective or in a potent force. Why do we need it? Well, because the large water mass that you mentioned, we are an island nation. And when it comes to the conventional deterrence that we do, there is no better weapon system to deter another power um, of approaching Australia's um, waterways and of sea lines and shipping lines than a submarine. First of all, you don't know if it's there because the whole point of a submarine is stealth, but you have to assume it is there and you have to therefore make countermeasures. So it massively complicates um, any consideration for any potential adversary. And this goes to the fact that very few countries in the world operate submarines. Those that do, there's even a smaller club that operate them effectively and operate them where they can actually achieve capable things. And that's a very small group of countries because they're a very complex um, weapon um, system. These though weapon systems, as you point out, they're about high risk conventional warfare. We have to worry about that stuff because it takes a long time to develop these capabilities. And if we do end up in a high-end conflict, these become much more risky and much more existential to Australia. On the other side of balancing risk in defence portfolios, grey zone stuff is happening. It's happening now. It's happening to us. It's happening to our friends and, and regions and the partner, partners in the region like Singapore and Indonesia. So how much do you balance out investing more money in the here and now that has a lower level of risk and threat to you versus the may not happen that has enormous amounts of, of outcomes if that comes to fruition. No one wants to have a war with China or any other country in the region, but if you're not prepared for that, the consequences of that are enormous and you need these capabilities to also to stop major powers who have those capabilities from, from coercing us using that, that military force. So you need to have a credible response um, to that as well. So defence policy is all about risk. Um, Submarines are designed to mitigate very, very high-end risk that you hope you never have to use, but we also need to spend time, effort and resources on the grey zone, the lower end, H, humanitarian assistance and disaster relief. I mean, the other thing to, to take out as point about COP and climate change, we should not underestimate this. We hopefully will never go to war with China, but we have to risk that, say, we may do it at the moment. Climate change is happening. It will occur. It is here. It's not going anywhere, even if we get a good deal out of Glasgow, unfortunately. And the real risk for defence policy people like me, we go from doing humanitarian and disaster assistance release, re relief because of cyclones and earthquakes and stuff, into 
people fighting countries, nations and groups fighting over water and land and scarce resources, mm. which is only going to mean we're going to need to use our military more. And that's that's a real serious concern. And, and climate change, as we know, is the existential threat we face now. We may or may not have an existential threat of a conventional war. Again, so where, how much do we balance between these two things? That's a really good point. But I wanted to bring Maria because I think that you might have a view on the utility of submarines. Yes, and I would actually agree with, with Peter on, on 90% of that. Actually, I think on most all of it, just, just a couple of points, though. I mean, I think one thing, you know, submarines are really good for anti-access area denial. If you're talking about protecting your space and, you know, we want to make it difficult for a power to be able to approach Australia for land invasion, for example. Um, the problem is, and, and, and so, you know, this risk is very low but it's certainly something Australia wants to be able to do. The problem is eight submarines will not do that at all. We need 24 minimum. And so we're spending an awful lot of money on something that may never come to fruition when we have a lot more immediate needs. That's my big concern. I actually don't have concern about, um, I mean, I, I agree that nuclear powered submarines make the best sense for Australia in a world where we have all the money we need and, you know, we can train up the industry. Um, they're actually not as quiet as some of the um, battery powered subs. I mean, there, there are trade-offs, but, but generally they're really good. So I'm, I've actually had some people say, oh, you're so anti-nuclear. Well, I'm anti-nuclear weapons, but in an uh, era of climate change, you know, I think we have to think about nuclear, um, uh, you know, we have to find ways to mitigate climate change. Um, but it's just to me, uh, so in other words, I agree with everything that Peter's saying. My only concern is that, you know, this is just sort of a very, it's not going get, to get us the amount that we need. And, and even, I, I don't even know if we can get these eight for the reasons that I've talked about. That's right. That's still an unknown in all of this. I think we agree on that one. Uh, but Natalie, I think we've got time for one more question and I did want to take us back to um, ASEAN uh, and, and this question about, um, there's a question about the ASEAN summit and whether that has or will likely to uh, deal with AUKUS, but also a question here about what is keeping the ASEAN bloc and members individually from exploring ways to reduce their social economic reliance on Beijing so that they can have more leverage in the political and military conversation. So a bit, I guess, about hedging and what that might mean for attitudes to AUKUS. Yeah, certainly. All right, let's take the first one in terms of the ASEAN summit. Um, from what I've seen so far, I don't think ASEAN as a bloc has, has responded to AUKUS directly. Um, what I've seen out of the ASEAN, the chair, the statement that's been released, um, like I said earlier, all those affirmations that are really key to ASEAN, Treaty of Amity Cooperation, Nuclear Free Zone, that's the response. Um, ASEAN needs to get on with the, the, the work that it set itself. Myanmar, for instance, that's got to be a priority. Climate change is in that response, post-COVID recovery, um, setting up you know, all the political ties and, and, and defence meetings as well. So ASEAN's got a very, very large agenda of which AUKUS will be one small part. I think what you'll see is what we've seen already, um, which are the individual responses of, of countries. I think it's really difficult for ASEAN to have one view um, on AUKUS and the best they can do is to reaffirm those those blocks that make ASEAN give it a sense, sense of identity. It's going to be 
concerned with making sure that that isn't undermined. Um, with regards to diversifying um, reliance on, on countries like China, a lot of Southeast Asian states are. And it is inevitable that some of the infrastructure investment, um, technical support and things like that, that is offered by China is attractive to Southeast Asian nations. Why would they turn it away? So in the case of Indonesia, when China is willing to, pre was prepared to act with, you know, certain groups, um, you know, retired military, for instance, and to conduct operations that other states may not, why wouldn't they? Um, Indonesia has a number of different sources of foreign direct investment, infrastructure support and cooperation, including Japan, including private entities in the United States, Australia, amongst others. Um, but it's, it, it is working on trying to diversify. Um, it's a delicate balance between, again, this idea of what is available immediately to what is in our longer term interests. Um, and for Indonesia, that has you know, pressing infrastructure concerns. I think there was an ADB report recently that talked about like the trillions of dollars in infrastructure gap funding that exists across Southeast Asia. Well, Southeast Asian countries um, have growing populations and you know, they've got things to get on with and they're going to take some of the money which is available with full knowledge that there are strings attached, with full knowledge that there are that there are costs to that, um, but you know there are efforts to diversify, and we'll see how far that goes. I, you know, my my colleague, my Verve colleague, um, Vic Chan, wrote a, a recent report for CSAS talking about how Vietnam is trying to diversify its trade ties away from China, and it's hard. Is 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 the short answer? Yeah, yeah, not just for Southeast Asian states, but for uh, for Australia as well. Uh, so I would like to, on that note, uh, thank our panellists, Maria, Peter, Natalie and Anna for joining us this evening. Uh, that was an incredibly interesting discussion and we had so many questions in the chat that I'm afraid that we didn't manage to get to all of them. But I think that really demonstrates how uh, engaging the discussion was and how uh, interested people are in uh, understanding not just the AUKUS arrangement but just, you know, what it means for Australia's role in the region and regional security more generally. So uh, really grateful that you have given us the time uh, tonight and thank you to our audience uh, for tuning in as well. Uh, our next scheduled Latrobe Asia webinar is Democracy in Malaysia, Prospects and Possibilities, and that's on uh, Thursday, the 18th of November at 5 p.m. AEDT. Uh, but please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Thank you.